Welcome back to the Earn Your Edge podcast. I'm Corey Lumberg from Altus Performance, and it's really nice to finally be releasing an episode during the actual golf season. We've got PJ Tour golf back. Uh, it feels like the rest of the year is going to be pretty exciting to watch. We're especially happy to have kicked off that return to golf with a win for Team Altus. Big congrats to Daniel Berger, who's been working with Cam for a little over a year now. He's been on a heck of a run in that time. If you haven't listened to his episode from a few weeks back, uh, I encourage you to do so. But first, we've got another major guest for you this week. Cam and I are joined by Justin Thomas, who needs no introduction from me. He's one of the best players on the planet. We've got lots of really cool stories from his junior golf days, him developing along with this insanely talented crop of young peers in that 2011 class. And then Cam and I really wanted to take advantage of just talking to a guy who's absolutely at the best of his game right now and getting him to share behind the scenes look at how he's approaching a variety of situations in competitive golf. And JT does an amazing job walking us through it all in great detail. If you're a competitive player, this is a rare opportunity to get inside the head of a guy who's at the top of his game. And for that reason, we were equally excited to do so as coaches. So as you would expect, a ton of good stuff to get into. We're also happy to announce we're teaming up with TrackMan. And so listen closely when Justin discusses how he uses TrackMan to dial in his wedges. Cam and I will interject with a description of a a practice task that we want to provide the audience with that will help you train your wedges very similarly to how JT describes. We'll be looking for ways that we can do something similar in coming episodes, and we're producing kind of a practice plan PDF with our friends at TrackMan that we'll offer up to you very soon. So stay tuned for that. But now, please enjoy episode 69 of the Earn Your Edge podcast with Justin Thomas. JT, thanks for joining us. I think uh, in this day and age, we're trying to fill our time with things that uh, can certainly, I guess, serve as time killers, but also move the needle in terms of like uh, personal goals. And uh, evidently, one of yours is, uh, is is physical fitness, and you're currently a top five player in the world. But I'm interested to understand where you rank in uh, the <laughs> top golfers that ride Pelotons. <laughs> Definitely not top five. I'm... Uh... I feel like I'm in pretty good shape and good condition, but man, it, I, I can't keep up with like Rory or Billy or, I mean, even Charlie Hoffman's really good. Bubba and I kind of, we, we like going together because we, um, you know, we, we give it all we got. We're just not quite at the, uh, apparently the same leg strength as those guys. <laughs> I'm curious if you guys are completely disregarding the recommendations for like resistance for, yeah, because absolutely. I, I'm, I'm following along and, I'm a Peloton enthusiast. You wouldn't know by looking at me, but I like to get on the Peloton too. And I have no chance at keeping up with most of the guys just because I assume they're not listening to the the resistance recommendations. Yeah, that's kind of how I was too. Cause I mean, I was doing some classes and then like, I would look at some of Rory scores and I was finally one day I was just like, dude, like, how are you doing this? I mean, <laughs> I understand that he's a freak and in, in terms of being in shape and, and always working hard in the gym and stuff. But I was like, I mean, I feel like I'm in pretty pretty damn good shape and uh, you're destroying me he's like well he's like i'm pretty much just putting the what the resistance i'm putting it at 55 to 65 the whole time and i'm pretty much out of the saddle so it's okay yeah so i mean i i always am because i'm not good at hammering it out you know if it's at 40 or 45 and and getting that cadence up to 90 or 100 but you know i feel like i can go I can go 15, 20 minutes of really high resistance and just kind of slowly out of the saddle. But that's uh, I still got a ways to go before I'm catching them. All right, you, you figured out the Rory cheat code. That's all I wanted <laughs> from this conversation. That's perfect. <laughs> well, I'm pretty sure that everyone appreciates the window into your guys' life and uh, certainly inspiration to get some exercise in as we're stuck at home. Most of that conversation start, and we've skipped over it, with a conversation about origin story. But I think that every listener out there is very familiar with your backstory, growing up in a golf family and having a lot of success from an early age. So rather than going through the entire origin story, I think we'd love to start by hearing about the point in your development when you figured out you were really good, when you had that moment, that round, you might have uh, won a tournament where you're like, oh yeah, I'm really good at this and I can do this. Yeah, I I think it's tough. I mean, it's it's different for everybody, but you know, growing up in Kentucky, I, I was I did well in the junior events and or in the state. But you know, I mean, I, I started playing events when I was probably six or seven years old. So um, you know, when you're that young, you don't know anything or, or what's going on. But I remember when I went and played the junior world, I was eight years old, and 
that was my first time playing an international event and playing against kids that were a lot bigger than me that could hit a lot farther than me that were better than me in certain areas. And, you know, cause in Kentucky at, at that age, there's not very many kids that are playing golf, let alone that many kids that have taken it as seriously and played as long as I had. So it was pretty easy for me to win tournaments at that age in the state. So once I got to the junior world or I'm sorry, the, uh, the U S kids is what I played in. Um, I lost in a playoff and uh for me that was like okay you know i just played and I, I forget how many kids are in the event but to me i'm like okay i you know i just lost to a kid in a playoff that's twice my size and hits it 40 yards farther than me and i and i still should have beaten him so like i i'm good enough whatever the the version of that was at an eight-year-old maturity level and thinking that's what i was thinking but i knew that um you know that i could at least play with kids from different uh states and countries so that was cool Another one of the points that we always try to dig into when we talk about that origin story is the family support or coach support that you had that helped kind of guide you down this this road towards high performance. And yours is is unique in that your dad was your coach. And we spoke with Xander Shoffley a few weeks ago and was really good to uncover. He's in a similar position where his dad is still his, currently his coach. I'm curious what those – you mentioned losing in a playoff – after a bad round, even though there weren't very many disappointments in your junior golf career, what were the conversations like in the car with mom and dad that helped support you in those moments? Yeah, they were great. And I think that's something my I, I'm so lucky and fortunate to have not only great parents, but just very supportive. And they also, they get it. I mean, my dad, you know, tried to play golf for a while. Um, my mom didn't play sports, but she was around my dad long enough to, and understood. And I was, and I still am very lucky to have great parents that are supportive. They, they always preach to me that they're going to love me the same and treat me the same, whether I shoot 65 or 85. Um, unfortunately for me, I shot more 65, so I have the job that I do now, but, um, <laughs> they just, they always were, their big thing for me was preaching attitude and how I conducted myself and, and kind of how I would go about my business because yeah, anybody can look good and, and seem like they know what they're doing, you know, when they're shooting a low round and they're going to win the tournament, but it's how you react and how you are as a person when you don't play well. And when you lose the tournament or, you know, you hit a bad shot and, and that's something I think every kid goes through at some point, they, you know, you're immature, you act like a, a child cause you are a child. And for me, that's probably when my parents or when my dad got on me the hardest is, you know, he's like, you, you can't be slamming your clubs. You can't be moping around like the world's going to end or whatever it is. And, you know, it, it takes everybody a different amount of time, but they just were always very supportive in how I was playing. But the lessons for me were more so character based, I would say. Right. And, and part of attitude, not necessarily the attitude that we see when a person's playing golf, but the attitude that is the underlying kind of force multiplier for Getting better is the hard work that one needs to apply, whether you're a junior golfer, whether you're a collegiate golfer, or whether you're a developing or even a world-class professional. In your case, one of the best in the world is a willingness to do that hard work. What did that hard work look like from, let's say, age uh, 10 or 12 all the way to 15, 16 when, uh, well, around age 14 when I come to, came to knew you through, uh, through Jordan? Yeah, for me, I, I was always small. I never hit it very far, so... I needed to have a really good short game to have a chance to compete, let alone win. And I don't know what age it was, but I do remember my dad telling me, you should start playing the tees with me. It's not going to be fun. You're not going to make birdies. You're not going to break par, but you're going to learn how to score. And, you know, you're probably not going to be able to get to 80% of the holes or 90% of the holes. He's like, but you're always going to be chipping. You're, you're going to just learn how to salvage pars, whether that is, for not being able to get to the green or just the fact that I'm hitting a three wood in the green. I'm not, the percentages aren't me hitting the green. So I'm going to need to get up and down. And I spent so much time chipping and putting. And when we go play, I would play the back tees with him or I'd play the men's tees to where, you know, the par fives were really my only birdie opportunities because they were the only holes that I had the chance to hit an iron into. And then the rest of the holes, it was just try to get up and down and try to leave it in a good spot, even at a young age. And, I think then once I started to get a little bit stronger and, and kind of hit my growth spurt to where I started hitting it a little bit farther, I maintained that short game to where I didn't feel like I had to kind of revamp it sort of thing, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Was there anything that you and Mike did to prioritize speed or was that just a matter of getting a little bit bigger? I mean, because you said you weren't very long and you were smaller, but now 
even pound for pound, you're one of the longer hitters on tour. So I'm curious if that's just a function of you getting a little bit bigger and stronger or something that y'all did uh, towards the, with a goal of speed in mind. No, I, I really just got bigger and stronger. I mean, I, I was so weak. I, I was 133 pounds when I was a fresh, my freshman year in college. So like, I just was, I was so skinny. So for, <laughs> yeah, I'm still not big. I'm still not, you know, maybe physically stronger, like look strong, but I'm, I'm functionally strong. And I think that's once I got to college and actually started lifting some weights and, and then I started understanding about angle of attack and, and being able to kind of optimize the launching conditions, if you will, to get into the, the scientific terms or whatever. But for me, it just was um, honestly just kind of growing into my body and getting a little bit stronger because I was so weak. I mean, the swings of me when I was a kid, you can see that the cub, the club controls my swing. Like I, I literally don't look strong enough to control the club going back. It just kind of goes and the weight of the club head takes it to where it is. And then the body, it just kind of follows it. It's actually pretty funny. It's interesting you say that. I was doing a bit of spring cleaning, uh, so to speak, in my computer, and in conjunction with the research that we were doing on you to try to fill in any gaps that I, um, that we had in terms of like your upbringing and, and, and performance and whatnot, I came about a swing that I took on video of you at the 2011 USM at Aaron Hills, and we were sitting, oh wow, I know, right? We were sitting on the range and. There are many facets of it that are dramatically different. The depth of the, the arm movement around your body and, yeah. and the, the club crossing a line pretty excessively at the top. Mm-hmm. But there's also a lot that is still part of your fingerprint, part of your, your DNA. So I guess the overall question that I'm looking to ask here is how much of the change that you've gone through to, let's say, put the club up in front of you at P2 at club parallel and then elevate your arms to a relatively upright or uh, quite an extreme upright lead arm position has been part of the the blueprint that you guys have followed versus just something that's happened organically? It's a little bit of both. Uh, it's funny you say that because I'll never forget the U.S. Junior, I want to say was 2010 was the year that I, I played and I made it to the finals and that was kind of the first, I mean, you know, I played in some amateur events. I hadn't really done anything great or I played in some big junior events, but I mean, the U S junior am, as you know, cam is kind of the, for a junior golfer, it's the biggest thing you can play in. And it's, it's the most publicity you you can get, you know, I mean, there's a lot of cameras around, there's media, whatever it is. So I just remember when I got done with the final match and, you know, like any, any kid that age, he starts looking at stuff and reading stuff. And I saw this picture of me taken from behind and my club was so far across the line. And I'm like, dad, I'm like, what? Like, that's so bad. You know, for me, when I, I struggled so hard with, I wanted it to look perfect. You know, I wanted my swing to look like tigers. And he was like, well, you just made it in the finals of the U S junior. It obviously isn't that bad. (laughs) So um, It's funny, but I've, I've always struggled with that. I've gotten a lot better, but I specifically remember that because it was at that point I'm like I, I can't I can't have this I, I hate how it looks and whether my dad knew it or not I would subtly try to get it more laid off and I'd try to feel like my club was pointed so far left at the top and I mean we did work on it but his big thing was always don't do that when you get on the course play golf don't play golf swing and uh, so just I, I've always been a big overcorrector like. You know, if I'm open, if my my hips are open and address one day, there's a pretty good chance a couple of days later they're going to be closed. Like I just, I'll bounce back and forth and try to find that I guess happy medium, if you will. But because I've I've actually gotten to the point where now, if anything, I'll get a little laid off, especially with my irons. Just I'll get my wrist bowed. But it took a long time to say the least to get there. But it's uh, it is pretty interesting looking at those old swings. I mentioned Xander earlier, and I think that you guys are the only examples that I can think of where the dad is the coach. So it's pretty uncommon. I'm curious if you mentioned seeing it across the line and saying, hey, we got to fix that. Was there any time where you guys as a team, as a group, considered auditioning other coaches? No, not when I was old enough to understand it. I think when I was young, he tells a good story. And Cam, you'll have to get him to to tell you. I forget how old I was. I was probably it sounds like something like a, an eight to 10 year old would say, but I guess we were, we were at a turn. You know what? I think, I think it was at the U S kids action. Now that I think about it, it when I was eight, um, because that was again, the first time I'd been at these tournaments and you know, there's some coaches there and 
I think I got done and we get home and I'm like, Dad, um, when am I going to get a coach? He's like, well, what do you mean? I was like, you know, when am I going to get a coach? He's like, I am your coach. I was like, no, 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 like a, a real coach. And he's like, I am a real coach. He's like, that's my job. I, I, I teach people. So, um, <laughs> Have you not been watching what that, I do every day? <laughs> exactly. So that, that's just, you know, something a, a typical kid that age doesn't understand. But as I've grown up and, and what something my dad is so good at is he's never very technical. He doesn't like getting into the scientific part of it, but he's good at kind of saying it different ways to where he something I, I remember I'd watch him give lessons or I'd hit balls by him when he gave lessons and every single person I, I mean I could hear it just ingrained in my mind he'd always say does that make sense to you so like he would describe it to the person yeah. and he would ask does that make sense because if it doesn't then he needs to find another way to describe it and that's something as I've gotten older and as I've played a little bit more maybe little things that we're working on one if I'm trying to cover the ball, you know, maybe trying to get my right shoulder a little bit over the ball doesn't work. But when I try to point my chest in front of the ball at impact, that does work. So it's just like trying to find something that works for me uh, whenever we're working on something. I promised you we're going to move away from your junior adolescent years into professional years here in just a little bit, but there's so much that we want to learn because that's what we do quite frequently is we're talking to parents and we're talking to adolescents or kids. And the two things, the two threads that I want to pull on, or it's actually three, you've already discussed two of them. You've, you've discussed access to resources, which is coaching and an ability to play. And you've also discussed proficiency or an ability to get it done, some experience of success that then fuels a continued desire to do more work. But what we haven't touched on is role models. And you had a lot of role models, role models around you at the club, one being Michael Jordan. And I read a story about you playing with he and Kenny Lofton when you were 15 years old. If you yeah. care to tell that one, I think the audience would appreciate that. But also as a follow-up to that, I'd like to understand how impactful you felt like it was playing with such great golfers in your graduating class of 2011, that high school class? The story with MJ is pretty, pretty entertaining. It's, he used to come in town for the Kentucky Derby every year. And, you know, MJ being MJ, he would want to come in a couple of days early and get some golf in. And uh, he had a friend who he played in the NBA with, Junior Bridgman, who was good friends with, with my dad and my family. And he, Junior was a member at my dad's club. And MJ called Junior and said, hey, I'm coming in town for the Derby. We need some places to play. And I mean, my dad's course, it's harmony. There's no tee times. You can play seven or eight people. Like, it's right up his alley. It's exactly what he wants in a golf course. So Junior was like, well, harmony will be perfect for you. You guys should go there. So they came out. We don't have caddies, so my dad would just send a couple bag boys out. And naturally, I would go with his group every year, me and another guy. And I think it was like the third or fourth year. I was probably, like you said, I think I was 15 or 16. They started on number three because I think a group had teed off on one and they were just apparently going to hold their eights them up. <laughs> and uh, when they got to two or number one on their second go round, he told my dad, MJ told my dad, he goes, hey, uh, why don't you go get, he always called me little man, go get little man's clubs. He's going to play the last seven with us. So. My dad went and got my clubs, and he'd heard that I was a pretty good golfer, and I think he'd seen me hit a couple shots, but hadn't obviously seen me play or anything. So he goes, all right, well, I got a little man on the last seven. We'll take whoever wants us, and everyone's like, oh, I want this, I want that, I want that. You know, everyone's teaming up, doing all these different ways, and I'm about to tee off, and everyone's telling me to go play the you know, the front tees, the ladies' tees. I'm like, no, I'm fine. It's It's okay. And I made four birdies and, and seven holes, and, and we uh, we cleaned up pretty good. And everybody didn't think it was quite as funny as they did when we were starting. So that was something I'll, I'll never forget, and we'll joke about time to time. You know, we both live down here in Jupiter, and it's it's funny because he still plays golf with a lot of the same people, and, and we'll get going on that story, and, and they'll all talk about how we robbed him that day. <laughs> so Beautiful. That was that was entertaining. But going into the other role models, I mean, my dad was a huge role model. My grandpa played a lot of golf and, and got a lot of advice from them. And then, I mean, Tiger was who I looked up to the most and who I wanted to be like. So playing with him nowadays has gotten to be pretty cool. But I mean, all of us in that in that graduating class of 2011, we just pushed each other so hard. And I think we were also competitive that, 
you know, I wanted to beat Jordan. Jordan wanted to beat me. We Pellucci would, would want to beat all of us. And then P Raj would want to beat. we'd want to beat him. And then Ollie would start winning. And then it was just like Emiliano and just, it, there was Denny McCarthy. Like you could just go on and on and on. And, and there were so many great players that, you know, it felt like every single week that we would all play somebody different or somebody new would win. It wasn't, you know, guys would maybe go on spurts of a couple of tournaments where they do well, but very rarely did somebody just dominate everything because the 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 depth was so, so deep, yeah. exactly so deep, and it was uh, it was fun. I'm hearing you tell that Michael Jordan story, and I'm picturing myself at 15 years old, maybe not handling the pressure of having to <laughs> be the teammate of Michael Jordan, the greatest athlete ever. And I'm thinking about just how you've dealt with pressure. You've got a really good record of closing out 54-hole leads. You're 3-1 in playoffs. So I'd love to get into now move away from the junior golf and now all you've accomplished uh, as a professional. I'd love to just understand and maybe dig into a little bit of how you approach what the self-talk sounds like in those pressure-filled situations and anything that you've found helps you cope because it doesn't sound like you've been very affected by it uh, in the past. Yeah, I think pressure is such a interesting thing. It's like it's so hard in, in terms of how you want to handle it sort of thing or how you want to approach it. And for me, it's just, I don't know, like it, you want to enjoy the moment. You want to be excited for it. And I think that's just something I, I've done. And I mean, the, the reality is you're going to fail a lot. It, it's just, unfortunately, the the harsh truth of golf. It's a very, very low percentage sport in terms of winning and, and not just that, but, you know, even a top five or a top 10 percentage. And you just have to accept that. And I think the sooner you can accept that, it might help a little bit more. And yeah, you can, you know, all the greatest players get on runs and, and will, you know, have a dominant year or two or, or just, you know, maybe not winning a lot, but they're just always right there. And you just, when you get there, you got to be ready and, and, and embrace it. And I think that's something that I, I just have done and I like it. And I've learned, I, I think I, I do a really, really good job of learning from mistakes or learning from things that happen. And, you know, like I, I, I try to get in the habit of, of going back and watching when, even if I win the tournament or if I don't win the tournament, I want to watch it just to see if I can pick up on anything. I mean, like in Mexico, all my misses left that left is a very common miss for me when I'm nervous or I get in contention. I just, I don't, I get a little quick and I don't cover it well enough and I end up missing it left for the most part. So that's something, I mean, you look at pretty much all of my misses uh, on Sunday in Mexico, maybe other than, you know, one or two were left. And that's something that I've just, I've picked up on. And, and I know that when I get in the heat of the moment, it's like, you know, maybe just lean a little bit more toward this, or it's like, you know, if I'm cutting, I really got to make sure that I'm swinging left and I'm, and I'm cutting it versus just going up there and hitting it. So just learning little things here and there and, uh, and just not being afraid of, of something bad happening. One of the more common questions that we get from Altus clients and listeners is how do I spin it like a tour player? Well, the first step is to treat your equipment like a tour player, and that means that you've got the right golf ball and you've got fresh grooves. Visit Vokey.com to see the spin research that Bob Vokey and his team have conducted to better understand how grooves wear over time. After 75 to 100 rounds of golf, you owe it to yourself to test your grooves to make sure that they're still getting maximum spin from your wedges. Find a fitter at Vokey.com for a spin test soon. One of the other challenges that we find particularly problematic and something to overcome when we're working with players of all calibers is the bad warm-up. And we talk about having a crap hits the fan plan. And I recall last year at Medina, uh, after you went out and shot 65 in a press conference, you said it was the worst warm-up ever, correct? Yeah. I'm wondering, yeah. what is it that you've learned over time, over the years, that helps you go out and actually find something that you can navigate around a golf course to produce a score, maybe not a score necessarily at 65, but a functional score that doesn't shoot you out of the tournament? For sure. And I've never been one to like look too much into a warm-up. I mean, I, I remember as a kid... I feel like I always wanted to say that because Tiger would get done winning a tournament and be like, you know, I had an unbelievable warm up. I hit the pin three times or this or that. And I was like, oh, well, if he's, you know, when you're nine years old, you're like, Dude, the best player in the world saying it. That's obviously what I need to say too. But exactly. it takes a little bit to realize that everybody's different. But I have, I've had some unbelievable rounds when I, I have a really bad warm up or, or just not necessarily a great one. It's for me, I, 
it's really the only thing I'm doing out there is getting loose. I, I spend a lot of my time chipping and putting because that's kind of the feel for me. I want to have my hands to feel like I have the speed correct and, and the timing correct for, whereas when I'm hitting balls, I mean, I've had sessions as, as small as, you know, eight to 12 minutes, whereas I go out there and I probably only hit 20 balls, but mm-hmm. I hate when I have too much time out hitting balls because I feel like I just didn't pass the time and I'm hitting balls to pass time. Whereas I just want to go out there really and get loose and hit different shots, you know, hit some low, hit some high, hit some left to right, right to left, just do a little mm-hmm. bit of everything. And then if, if I can pick up on something great, but in the reality, I'm just out there trying to hit different shots and kind of get my body loosened up and ready to go. But when I do have those bad warmups, I really just don't think anything of it. It's just, it's, I know when I'm not hitting it well, what I need to do to get it around a course. And, and I mean, Jimmy recognizes that and we're going into that Thursday and, uh, in Chicago, we just were like, okay, you know, we just need to be extra cautious and, and conservative out there today because I don't know where the golf ball is going. I don't know how I'm hitting it. So, you know, say on number two with at Medina where you got water everywhere, like, yeah, obviously if it's a perfect club or if I just need to hit it solid to get to the over the water, we're going to take one more because I don't know how I'm hitting it. So it's little things like that or where if I'm between clubs, just kind of get it on the green sort of thing, make a par, move on and then just try to take advantage here and there when you have opportunities or par fives or whatever it might be. And then you never know, you could kind of get into something like I did that day where I just start playing well and, and hitting it close. Yeah. And those tactical adjustments are a common thread that we hear from a lot of players, the best players in the world that are able to take their B game and end up still shooting a good round. And we see that as being a differentiator among the best in the world. But on the other side of that, when you do have your A game, when you feel like you've got it on go, you've shot 59, there's a bunch of other super low scores, and you've shown the ability to keep the pedal down in those moments. So when you are feeling really, really good, I'm curious what either the self-talk is or what the conversations are with you and Jimmy that makes it to where you're not afraid to continue to, to go lower and have that mentality in those moments. Yeah, it's fun. It doesn't happen very often. I mean, I, I would honestly say that the only tournament i've ever had where i've had my a game was sony that week i mean i did everything well that week but there's always something or there's always one day but as a whole i mean that week i played really 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 good golf for four straight days and it's honestly you just kind of go unconscious it's like you get up there i'm i'm pretty quick i would say my process will get a little bit slow sometimes maybe on the greens or if it's windy, the sh- we'll, when we're trying to talk about something to get to be confident. But I mean, when I'm playing well and things are going, I'm pretty quick. Like I just am. All right, you know, we got 157. It's a little in off the left. You like eight? He's like, yeah, I like eight. Well, you know, what kind of shot do you see? I, I kind of like holding it a little bit. Uh, what do you think it's playing? I got like 163. Yeah, that's about what I thought. Maybe give it a couple more. If anything, we want to be past the hole. Okay, perfect. I go in and hit the shot, and it's just, it's all the same. It's it's the same kind of process. It just kind of differs depending on what obviously the situation, the shot and stuff like that. But it's just very quick, thoughtless and sport, just unconscious really. When I, when you go try to go back and think of it, you almost can't think of it. You speak of unconscious, you speak of uh, the flow experience. And I'm, and I'm wondering whether you've experienced that at small spurts within rounds and whether you've been able to, as you step back away from those rounds, you talked about watching yourself see differences uh, in either the way you approach shots, the physical representation of your best performing self. So we oftentimes talk with players about what it looks like, what it feels like to be on the outside looking at themselves performing really well. And then they reflect on or they they kind of pair that together with the self-talk that's going on in their head. So I guess the, the question is, have you been able to identify the one or two things that you can demonstrate, you do demonstrate when you're in that zone, when you're in blackout. Definitely fearless. It's, I kind of compare it to, you know, if we go out and play just for fun, whether it's a group of buddies or myself, you know, we're probably going to hit driver every hole. Like you, I'm like, if I go play bears club, I say all the time, if I had an actual tournament there, I don't know how I would play it because there's so many holes that aren't drivers, but I hit it because I mean, what, what am I scared of? What what am I going to, okay. I hit it in the junk. I, I'm out of the hole. Cool. I go to the next hole. Then you get in a tournament and you're like, damn, like that kind of gets a little narrow up there. Like, <laughs> well, if I pull this, you know, like it's going to go through the fairway in those trees. And it's like, but no, when, and Jimmy's so good at that too. He knows to where when I get in that zone, 
he does a lot, but it's still a little bit of a kind of stay out of the way. thing. if I'm like, I like driver, he's like, I love it. And it's just, I get up there and I just swing as hard as I possibly can and try to hit it as far as I can. And it goes pretty straight when I'm driving it like that. And he knows with irons, if I have a left pin and I'm hitting it well, I'm going to start it, you know, four to six yards left of it and I'm going to cut it to it. And that's just what's going to happen sort of thing. And just don't have fear. I'm not thinking about short siding. And I mean that, that eight iron I hold on 16 at BMW, I mean, that pin was back left and it was just a perfect eight iron number. And I obviously was hitting it well. And I mean, we talked about it and he knew exactly I was going to start that thing left of the hole on the edge of the green and cut it right back to it because what else was I going to do? That's exactly <laughs> what I was going to do the whole time. And it was never a conversation. It was never any doubt. It was just like, give me the eight iron and go stand over there and watch this kind of thing. No holding the reins at that point. So, yeah. <laughs> so Cam brings up that first part of the conversation that we like to have with players is helping them identify and be really clear on, all right, here's what your best performing self looks like. But then the second part of that conversation that we often have is, well, let's find ways to prime that before you go play, not leave it to chance, not just however you show up on the first tee is how you show up. So I'm curious if there's anything that you've identified or discovered and the things that you can do before a round that help get you into that place instead of just waiting for it to come. It's hard. And there's so many little things, especially as golfers. It's, I mean, I think as a, as a whole, we're pretty weird in general, just of like the little tiny things that maybe trigger us or bother us or just things that we do in our routine that like, you know, well, I have to get treatment an hour, 45 minutes before, like someone can't go then, especially in a big round or like, no, I have to eat this certain meal. It's like, we just, across the board, the things that guys do are very weird, I would say as a whole. So for me, I think it's, it's honestly just, I mean, getting rest and sleep is, is number one, most important. I think when, when I don't get sleep, which is obviously it, you can't just like flip a switch and say, okay, I'm going to sleep great tonight. You know, you have to do the proper things. You have to be eating the right things, making sure you're hydrated, et cetera. And, but just being rested, it, is going to give me my least irritable form of myself, which is what, <laughs> which is what everybody wants on, on the team between me and myself. So really the whole morning, those afternoon times are tough and because you're just trying to pass time. And honestly, I just like being away from anybody and everybody because no offense to them. And, and yeah, you know, my family, my girlfriend, my friends, I love them all, but they're most likely going to try to say something to try to help. And it's going to make it worse. Like just, you know what I mean? It, it's something to where, look, if I want to talk about it, I'll bring it up. Right. Just don't bring it up. I don't want to have the coverage of – I don't want the golf channel on in the morning if we're staying in the house. I don't want to get a question asked if I'm nervous or how I'm feeling about the day. Like, I'm, I'm fine. I'm a grown man, and if I want to talk about it, I'll bring it up. Like, I don't need you – making me nervous. Like I, I give my, my mom and my girlfriend crap all the time about Chicago because my girlfriend has been there for many, many of my wins as funny as it is. And the couple she has, I wasn't leading going into Sunday. So that was her first time of me leading going into Sunday. And I think I had a, a six or a seven shot lead. She was a nervous wreck on <laughs> Sunday morning. We're driving at the courses. She's asking me all these questions and I'm like, and I mean, I didn't say it to her, but I'm just like, geez, I'm like, she's making me nervous, like asking me all this stuff. And then I go out and I'm warming up and my mom comes out to the putting green to tell me good luck and play well. I'm like, we got done. And I grabbed both of them. I'm like, you guys need to do something about that because that was ridiculous. I'm like, you two are making me nervous. Like you never come out to the putting green and wish me good luck. Like I could see how nervous you were and that doesn't help me. So just don't talk to me. And I guess the other side of that is you could look at that as, as you being the rock, you being the calm in the storm, right? For sure. For sure. And it, you know, obviously I was fine and I handled it. Okay. But it just was, it was funny because it's, you know, they're like, they love you so much and, and they want you to do so well and, but they have no control. So they feel like they need to do something or say something when in reality, it's like, look, unfortunately, like there's going to be a lot of, I hate to say bad things or bad times, but there's going to be a lot of heartbreak in this sport over the course of a long career. And it, it is what it is. Like I'm, if, if I don't win or if I don't play well, it's not because of a lack of effort or not because of something they did. It's all on me and Jimmy and the rest of my team. Like I'm going out there and trying as hard as I can. And if I don't win, yeah, it sucks, but we'll learn from it and try to move on. But it's like, I don't, 
it's already hard enough to win. I don't need something else to add to it. So they took it well and they understood and they both admitted they were nervous, but you know, there's days where I'm, I'm nervous even without anything. And, um, and that's just a part of it, but that's also why you play. Exactly. Hey, you mentioned your recovery and that, that was something that you were monitoring. I'm curious how closely you're monitoring the biofeedback from the whoop because like during a tournament yeah. week, because I've had guys that wear it that will come back and they'll say, I don't really want to wake up in the morning and see that I'm at 30% mm-hmm. recovery because that's going to yeah. have a, a psychological effect that I'm not really interested. So I, I'd love to hear how you're using that during tournament weeks. Yeah, I don't, I mean, I look at it every morning and I, and I mean, I want to know because to me it's like, I know that, you know, if I maybe didn't sleep very well or if I have a lower recovery, then I need to be smarter on the course. I'm going to be more likely to, you know, maybe not talk through a shot with Jimmy or, or just, you know, maybe inch a little bit closer to the flag on, on a four, on a five or six iron when I don't need to just from, from lack of just being focused and being there totally. And, and that's something that it, I, I take a lot of thought in. I mean, I haven't had, I mean, knock on wood, I, I don't really have any days of, of red recovery when I'm in a tournament. I don't, I'd never drink during a week of a tournament or usually the weekend going up into it. And I'm drinking a lot of water. I eat well, I go to bed early. So, I mean, I, yeah, I've had a lot of yellow recovery's and I I'm pretty sure when I shot 61 at uh, Medina, I was at like 60% like or something like that. So it's not like, you know, you wake up 95 like, "Oh yeah, here we go. We're going to post a low one today." Like, it's just it's more that I honestly like it because, you know, I can sometimes I can look at that and be like, "Damn, you know, like only 35." And I get out there and I'm like, you know, Jimmy, like I'm, and you can feel it. I'm like, you know, I'm not maybe feeling all there today. I need you a little bit today to keep me in it and make sure I'm focused sort of thing. So if anything, it's, I feel like I can use it as a tool to not to be scared of, but to be like, okay, you know, that's good to know. Uh, Instead of waking up and not knowing and being like, ah, you know, maybe I am a little tired versus like, oh, wow. Yeah. I, you know, I didn't sleep great last night. I need to be a little bit more careful out there on the course today. Can we geek out and be golfers and golf nerds here for a bit and get inside what it looks like to uh, sharpen the axe, so to speak, for uh, one of the best players in the world? What does an off-week practice look like? What are your go-to drills that tell you you're not only doing the work to uh, construct or improve technique when necessary, but also to make sure that you're checking the box on uh, my skills are also ready to perform when I hit the road again? It's very dependent, I guess, on kind of where in the year and where in the schedule you're trying to get ready, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. You know, like if it's I'm getting ready for Kapalua, I've had a lot of time off, I'm going to do more practicing. Or if it's I had two weeks on and a week off and then I'm playing again, it's going to be different. But I'll just say and say getting ready for a major. I'll do something like that. So I've noticed over the past couple of years that I've had a lot of my really good tournaments off of playing, uh, playing the week before uh, I've, I've won off of off weeks as well, but I feel like my best, some of my best weeks have been from playing the week prior. So I kind of, unfortunately it took me longer than it should have to realize that, but I, I realized that kind of <laughs> last year and I feel like I've underperformed in the majors, uh, quite a bit. So, and I always take the weeks off before the majors because to me, that just kind of seems like that's what you always should do. So for me, if I'm getting ready for that, my dad will come down usually the whole week, and I won't do anything Monday, Tuesday, and then if I do something Tuesday, it'll be something very light. But I, I am training all week. I'm, pre- I'm I'm in the gym. I'm getting treatment, and really just getting rest. Rest is my most important thing on an off week. It's just making sure that I'm sleeping properly. I'm eating enough. I'm eating the right foods. I'm staying hydrated because that's all stuff that I can control and all stuff that's going to help me perform my best. But what I've started to do is I've tried to start playing the week prior. So I almost will treat Thursday to Sunday as a tournament if I'm at home. So I'll try to, you know, whether it's a buddy who's on a mini tour or Rory or Ricky or MJ, like I- I'm trying to get games every day, you know, play for, I don't care if I play for 50 bucks or 500 bucks. Like I just, I want to go out and do something or play to where like I go out there, you know, I have my hour warm up like I do in a tournament. I go out and play. If I didn't play well, just like I do in a tournament, I'll go back out. I'll practice on what I need to. Or if I play well, I'll just go home. I'll go home and rest and then do the same thing the rest of the week. Yeah, there's going to be weeks where I can't maybe find a game or I have to go play by myself. But I just have tried to play 
those weeks off. And then when I am practicing, you know, say Tuesday or Wednesday or, or afterwards, I'd like doing drills. I like something that gives you instant feedback and can just, you know, tell me if I'm not, if I'm performing well or not. Right. So right. yeah, I'll do a, a four to eight foot putting drill and I need to get 16 out of 20 before I stop or I'll do a 10 to 15 foot uh, drill and I need to make half of them. And these are all based off of, you know, PGA tour leaders and, and shot length and stats and stuff like that. Or I'll look at the course that I'm playing the next week and, you know, like Augusta, I hit a lot of nine and eight irons when I play there. So I'm doing a lot of 150 to 175 yard work mm-hmm. uh, on track man and, and at facilities, you know, there's, of course, down here that that has a great practice facility and iron range to where I, there's a green at that distance to where I can I can practice that. So I pretty much am just looking forward to where I'm going and things that I need to work on when I go out on the range and do practice. I love the detail that you provided there as far as the exact tasks that you're doing, because I know that everyone that is listening is going to learn a lot from that and be able to add that into their game. But I would love a similar amount of detail on your like wedge play, distance wedge tasks, because sure. I, I heard on the no laying up podcast uh, that you did a couple weeks ago, which was music to my ears where you described kind of your approach to those shots, which is deferring down in club a lot, taking off, you know, managing the spin and the trajectory to, to have really good distance control and attributing yeah. that towards your success. So if you had an hour to go spend on distance wedges, what are the kind of performance tasks that you're completing to make sure that those yardages are dialed? It's the same thing as like a 150 to 175. It's just a, a lot tighter scale. I mean, the place that I was referring to is the, with the facility. It's, it has greens around the same distance, and the, and the size of the greens are – I'm able to have feedback of what the, say, the PGA Tour leader is um, from that distance. So, you know, if I go to the 75 to 100-yard green and put the pin on, on the top left or the, or the top right or the bottom left or the bottom right, the size of that green is, say, 7 feet. And I know that if I hit that green, I beat the PGA Tour leader because from that distance, because that's what the size of the green was built for. So, but I, I just I do a lot on TrackMan too, just because I want to know how much farther it goes if I hit a little draw or if I hit a little cut. You know, what what does it take anything off? How does the RPM and spin change? You know, because it's like if I have a front pin and 105 yards, it's like, well, am I better off? You know, hitting a max max lob wedge and turning it over a little bit or am i better off just slicing a sand wedge like what's going to give me the most spin or same thing to a back pin and it really is just me hitting a lot of shots and you know just trying to see how many clubs i can hit at 90 yards with how many trajectories how many shot shapes i can hit at 90 yards with and and different clubs and, and just kind of going through it to where when you get out in the course and it's pebble beach and it's soft. It's like, well, you know, I need to hit a, a gap wedge here from 90 yards or a pitching wedge. And I feel like I can at least get it within a couple yards, which is the, the end goal. We wanted to jump in really quick since Justin has just mentioned how he's working on wedges, how he's using TrackMan to provide him with a lot of different feedback. And we thought it would be a good time just to expand on this idea a little bit and really offer some of our coaching wisdom, hopefully, some ways that we like to use TrackMan to help our clients take their wedge play to the next level during their practice. Yeah. So in working on wedges, uh, beyond the obvious solid contact and direction control that we're looking for as coaches and players should be looking for, what we're also looking for, along with the best players in the world, what they're looking for, what we feel is important is we need to be able to control both trajectory and distance. So you're never left in a spot without the proper tool to hit your carry number with the right height of shot to ultimately get a close and score lower. And so in order to do that, we're going to use your track man and we're going to offer you this skills task that we want you to practice quite frequently to sharpen uh, your wedge tools. And so the uh, skills task is called wedgeways. And so here's how it works. You're going to set out targets from 30 to 90 yards and you can use cones or alignment sticks as downrange targets, or you can just go by a kind of visual feel. Now with your track man running, you're going to start at 30 yards and you're going to hit a set of five shots. We want these shots at stock trajectory. So the obvious question that comes then, Corey, is what stock trajectory? So on TrackMan, what we look for, Corey, myself, and the best players in the world, we're looking for launch angles at around 30 degrees and just a stock wedge shot. So bring up that launch angle number, look for around 30 30 degrees, give yourself a plus or minus of two degrees on either side of that. Now, 
getting back into the task, each time you practice this task, you should be looking to land as many of those five ball sets as possible within the following distance windows. I call that an error allowance. So when you're hitting anywhere from 30, 40, or 50 yards, you're going to look for a plus or minus three yards. So for instance, if you're hitting a 50-yard set, you're trying to land as many balls within 47 to 53 yards. So again, just to reiterate, 30 to 50 yards, plus or minus three. When you go from 60 to 90 yards, we're going to give you an error allowance or a window of plus or minus four yards from that distance. Now, there's also some ball speed numbers that you can use as an additional reference point for those uh, different yardages. And we'll include those benchmarks in a very soon to be released practice manual that we're creating in partnership with TrackMan that we'll share with you very soon. So ultimately, when you can land four of your five ball set in the distance window that you're hitting, you've ultimately reached to a level, which is a great aspiration, right? I love it. Absolutely. So as Cameron mentioned, we'll be summarizing this in some future tasks in a document that we'll hopefully be sharing with you very soon. But we highly recommend training your wedge play with tasks like this. It's how we're training all of our clients to achieve the kind of improvement in that world-class wedge play that Justin just described. So give it a go soon. But now back to JT. I'm noticing that embedded in a lot of your responses is the skill of just reflection. Like you mentioned before about that, you'll go back and watch some rounds, even as you describe your wedge practice, you're reflecting after each one and learning and then, and then moving something or changing something, making the necessary adjustment. And I'd love to hear a little bit about how that reflection plays into your goal setting. Like I want to thank you on behalf of coaches around the world for being so open and sharing your list of goals before the year, because when, you know, it comes from coach, when players see that it means one thing, but when they see the number one player in the world committing towards a goal setting process, it, it carries a lot more weight. So I'd love to get a behind the scenes look at what the reflection looks like that precedes your listing of those goals. Yeah, it's it's not rocket science. I mean, it pretty much is just looking at what I didn't do well that we feel like we need to improve to win more. And then what did I do well that was causing us to play well? And let's maintain that sort of thing. And, you know, I don't think it's necessarily, you know, getting jumping 90 spots in strokes gained putting as much as it is, you know, jump 20 in short game and jump 30 in putting and jump two and driving and through like it's just it's if you just get a little bit better and everything yeah it's obviously great if you know you have an unbelievable putting year or, or putting month or six months whatever you're going to win a lot of golf tournaments or ball striking whatever it is but as a whole i want to be complete all around to where i'm just slowly getting better and everything to where i feel like at least if one part of my game isn't working it's like okay well you know i'm pretty good at the rest of them versus you know if you're only if I'm only a really, really good driver of the ball, then all of a sudden I don't drive it good. I'm pretty screwed. So I got to figure out something to do. And that's kind of what we're working on. So it's just ways to go about that and, um, and things that, you know, everybody in their certain area of the team needs to contribute to where we accomplish that goal. I want to go back and ask a question about managing noise and critics, particularly in the day and age of social media. And you have an interesting stance, a unique stance, maybe not necessarily unique, but what I consider to be an interesting stance in which you you tend to uh, lean in and whether the, the noise is coming from inside your own head, the voice in your head that's telling you uh, that you can or can't do something or in today's day and age where it's so easy for that noise to come from the outside can you explain your rationale as to why you choose to lean in and, and, and almost bring your audience uh, in? And then as a follow-up to that, what advice would you give teenage players out there in terms of how they can silence those critics? Yeah, I've definitely gotten better at not reading as much. That's a big, big pet peeve of mine with social media is it wasn't created to for people to hide behind a computer or a phone and just – make fun of people or, or just talk down to somebody because right. they aren't performing well. Like, you know, there's, I mean, 100% of the people that talk crap to us about golf can't beat us. Sure. They just can't. <laughs> but yet, and I would say 99% of the 100% would not say it to my face directly. <laughs> so, I mean, it's amazing. I've done it a couple of times. I haven't done it at all recently, but you know, someone will say something behind the ropes where you don't hear them and then you happen to see it. 
and I, I'll just kind of catch them and be like, what did you say? And they're like, I didn't say anything. I'm like, yeah, that's what I like. I, I'm right here, dude. You think just because you're behind those ropes, you can say whatever you want. Like you can't say something about my family member just because you're behind the rope. Like that's just not cool. So my thing is I, I've tried to use my social media as a platform to get other people to know who I am and to grow my brand. But if I happen to run into, you know, a fan at a tournament and whenever we start playing again, I want them to know, to feel like they know enough about me, you know, know as much about me as you do, Cam. Like, I, I want them to know that, you know, that I, whatever, I have a dog, that these are my friends, that I go play these golf courses as opposed to them seeing me for the first time and not knowing anything about me. Then they aren't able to relate to me in any way. And I don't know, that's just how I look at it. But I try, you know, every once in a while, I enjoy just kind of reading some stuff and, and what people say just because of how idiotically stupid it is. And just like, and, you know, they're trying to talk trash and they just, they're so unfactual in what they're saying. It's just like, I can't help but say something. It just, it drives me nuts. But it. I've definitely gotten better just in terms of not reading it because really nothing positive does come from it. Um, as funny as it is, I, I picked a pretty bizarre year to give up Twitter for Lent because I haven't had it during this whole entire time. And it's like, obviously, I wish I had it because it, it's going to pass up some time during the day. But I can't imagine the amount of negative, just negative energy that's going online and on Twitter right now. So I'm pretty happy I don't have it to read it. Well, you mentioned that surplus of time that you have. And while we realize that's the case, we're still really appreciative of, of you spending a little bit with us today. We want to close with just a few of the kind of quick hitter questions that we typically finish our interviews with, and you can answer them as quickly or, or in as much detail as you'd like. Uh, but the first question that I'll go with is one that I, I really like because we get a really wide range of answers from really good players, and that's on swing thoughts. Whether you're over the ball, some players, like we talked to Webb Simpson, and he said, I'm blank over it, I'm not thinking of anything. And, and we hear other players that say, I've, I've always got at least – one or two things that I'm trying, one kind of mental cues that I'm trying to take care of. Where do you stand on the amount or what percentage of rounds you've played without them? Or if, if that's even the case, I like to have something. I, I I've said that to my dad before I, and I've said it to Kellen, I'm my putting coach. It's like, I don't like not having something I want to, you know, if I'm hitting it good, you know, my, like what drives me crazy. And he knows this now is We'll be on the range. I'm like, how's it look? He's like, great. You're swinging awesome. I'm like, okay, well, what? Like, I need something. You can't send me out to the golf course That's like familiar. That. And That's very familiar. <laughs> yeah, you, you've heard that before. I've heard that so, many times. you know, for me, it's like, you know, yeah, if all the videos are good, they're, but there's got to be something, you know, I maybe am a little bit inside to where it's like, yeah, everything looks great. But, you know, if you're losing a little bit right or a little bit left, it was just coming a little bit inside on the way back to where, that's just something that I have that I know in the back of my head or, you know, just maybe everything is good, but you know, maybe just, just watch that posture. Your posture was getting down a little bit and, and stuff like that. So I like to have something that I can kind of focus on to whether it's my takeaway or, or covering the ball. That's, that's often something I think about is trying to cover the ball a little bit more at impact. But, um, same with my putting. I just, I just like to have something to kind of focus on, whether it be one or two things scoreboard watch or not and i guess it's dependent upon the day and your situation in the tournament but maybe run the scenario of it's a friday do you want to know where you are relative to the lead or uh, on an off week the cut line or on sunday do you want to know where you are yeah i always want to know i, I still think that people especially jordan i just i call him out on that all the time how he says like we're not looking at leaderboards i'm like dude you're looking at like there's just <laughs> no way you're not looking i mean i I remember, I mean, that was one of the most unbelievable rounds that Sunday at Augusta uh, a couple years ago, yeah. and he wasn't looking at leaderboards that day. And I was so wrapped up. I'm like, Jimmy, like, is he going to do this? And he's like, dude, we got four <laughs> holes left. Like, shut up and let's finish this freaking tournament. And I'm just, I wanted him to win so bad because I couldn't. And I'm looking back and forth and all these different ways and wanted to witness history, you know, one of my best friends. And then... He bogeys 18, and I remember when he tapped in, he turned around and looked at the scoreboard, and he was so dejected because he saw he was one back. And I was like, damn, maybe he really wasn't looking at the scoreboard <laughs> the whole day. <laughs> so for me, I like looking at it because I don't – like if I have a three-shot lead, I'm going to play a lot differently than if I'm three back. Obviously, on Friday, it doesn't – I don't want to say it doesn't matter, but it's not the same as Sunday. But 
I've never understood that the purpose of not scoreboard watching because how are you going to know how you need to play? Yeah, I get that you still need to hit the shots and, and stay in your focus, but if I have a lead, I'm going to play a lot differently than if I don't have the lead. Right, right on. Toughest round of golf you've ever played, and if you can, put it into perspective for the people out there that are golfers of decent ability, how difficult it was. Sunday at the Open this year was extremely, or this past, sorry, last year. Port Rush, right. Was it, Port Rush was, it was so hard, and I, I mean, I, I would probably put that in my top five rounds I've ever played. I played so good. Let's see. I think I want to say, I, I mean, I just remember I, I started way, way back and, you know, in 30th place or something and or 20th. And I remember thinking through probably 12 holes or, or 11 holes. I'm like, I, I can win this tournament. Like I, the leaders were just teeing off. And I was like, I, if I make a couple birdies and I post you know, they can go shoot five, six, seven over today. Like, it's that tough out here. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, that rain that we had and played in on 16 and 17 was the worst. I, I'm not kidding. I hit this drive on 17. I, it's, I'm not exaggerating. It sliced 250 yards. Like, I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't get it. I'm so mad at myself still because I played so, so well to get into the around, you know, top five. I think I was. that's about what I was. And then I tripled 17 and end up finishing 11th and it was such a dejection because I just was on you know one hole to where it was the worst of the day and one swing cost me three strokes in, in a top five so right. I don't think a, a you know a, a 10 handicap there's just zero chance they would have broken 100 in that stuff it was just so unbelievably difficult and it was raining so hard and was so windy it was unbelievable oh, we were there uh, unfortunately we were not out in it or fortunately we were not out in it we were sitting in the uh player dining watching on tv feeling for all of you guys who are out there trying, yeah. to, trying to do battle on that stuff a, be, a beer has never tasted so well when <laughs> exactly. i got in the clubhouse exactly right <laughs> uh want to thank you for your time and i want to close with uh, thanking you from behalf of the golf world you know you are an amazing performer an amazing person and we can look at your performance on the golf course and hold you up but i think we should we should also hold uh, yourself and your peers up for what you do off the golf course. So maybe close by uh, giving us um, some understanding and point people towards the appropriate, I guess, site or uh, contact for your foundation, the Justin Thomas Foundation. It's been fun. It's I've always wanted to, I shouldn't say always, I, I've wanted to have a foundation since I've gotten on tour. And I mean, Jordan's been such a great, you know, even role model for me in, in that and how well his foundation's done at such a young age. And you know, he's done a lot of cool things and won a lot of great tournaments, but that was something that I I looked up to him a lot and was, you know, I was jealous of his green. I still am jealous of his green jacket and his U S open trophy. But, you know, a couple of years ago, before I had my foundation, I was like, it's, it's pretty unbelievable. You know, at 23, 24 years old, he has such a, an unbelievable foundation and how well it's going. And for me, that's something I wanted to do, but the timing needed to be right. And just to be able to, I mean, our event last year was so cool and, and doing it in Louisville was something that was very special just to the city that I grew up in and have so much, I feel like support and love just with all the people there and, you know, having my, my best friends and my, you know, my grandparents and people that I grew up, you know, basically saw me since I was born at my dad's golf course, you know, from him just kind of let me crawl around the pro shop when I was six months or a year old. And, and now standing up on stage with Peter Jacobson, thanking, you know, 550 people for coming to the foundation event and, and just being able to help, whether it be the, the junior golfer, the, the children in need, you know, first tee and uh, boys and girls club or, or military families. It's just to be able to have those impact on, on people just because of playing golf. Well, it's, it's something that's kind of hard to put into words, but I think the, the interaction and, and when, you do get to experience those kind of events, whether it be giving a kid a, a scholarship or giving them clothes for Thanksgiving or, and shopping for them, like seeing the look on their faces uh, when you're able to kind of impact their lives that positively is just something that you can't, you can't put a trophy on it. You can't put a amount on it. It's just, uh, it's cool. And it's very, very rewarding for sure. Awesome. Justin, thanks for the detail on that. And uh, it's a message that we all need to hear, especially right now. So um, we're going to let you go. We're going to let you get back to the Peloton. Now that I know the Rory cheat code, I'm going to go and, and, and dial up the resistance. But uh, we hope to do it again with you soon. We hope that we get to see you playing soon. Thanks, guys. Appreciate you all having awesome, me on. Stay safe. Okay, thanks, see you, man. Bye. See you, guys.
Thanks for listening to this episode. If you want to learn more about Altus Performance, go check out altusperformance.com. We're also pretty active on Instagram, so follow at Altus Performance, and you can also follow on Twitter at Team Altus. If you haven't done so, please hit the subscribe button wherever you listen to your podcast, leave a review, share it with others, and be sure to stay tuned to future episodes of Earn Your Edge. Thanks for listening.